Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, Then Sings My Soul, and Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation. Recently, Rob began a video teaching series entitled The 50 Final Events in World History, The Book of Revelation Demystified. You can use this self-paced video study for individual or group use. It includes downloadable visual aids for personal reference or for Bible teachers who want to teach this material to others. Visit robertjmorgan.com courses and use the coupon code podcast at checkout for a special listener's discount. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Today we're coming to the end of our series of studies, How Firm a Foundation, on the scriptural portions behind each of the incredible stanzas of this great hymn that I've come to love. Next week, I want to begin a study with you through the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which has been a long-desired ambition of mine. So prepare for that and maybe read ahead a little bit. But for today, let's review the great hymn on which we've focused our hearts and minds and I hope that you come to love it like I do. The first stanza presents the thesis of this hymn. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith and his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled? The remaining stanzas are all promises taken from the Bible, and in some cases, almost word for word. The second stanza is based on God's promise in Deuteronomy 33:25 to give us strength equal to our days. The hymn says, In every condition, in sickness, in health, in poverty's veil or abounding in wealth, at home and abroad, on the land, on the sea, as your days made a man shall your strength ever be. The third stanza is a masterful paraphrase of Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. The next two stanzas are drawn from Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 and verse 2, with a passing glance to some verses in First Peter. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply, The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The next verse is drawn directly from Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 4. Even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love, and when silver hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. And now today we're coming to the last verse, which says, and this is such a powerful closing stanza for a hymn, I don't know of a hymn that has a more powerful closing. 
that soul that on Jesus hath lain for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Recently, police officials found an elderly black Labrador tied to a public fence in an English village. The dog had a note on which, in penciled letters, they read these words, Please, can you take me in as my owner has abandoned me? He abandoned me after ten years because I have not learned to be good, so I have been returned here where he found me. The BBC caught wind of this story and carried it around the world along with an endearing picture of the dog, and many readers and viewers longed to reach out and pet that animal because their hearts had been touched. I think the story went viral because so many people relate to it. We all know that we've not as been as good as we should, and many people in our world have a sense of having been betrayed or forsaken or abandoned by someone they love. In all honesty, I can say that I can feel something of the pain of this, but I've never really experienced it in a highly personal way because I've been so fortunate to have never felt abandoned by a loved one. I've had friends who betrayed me and friendships that have disappointed me. We've all had those. But I've never had a dad or a mom or a spouse who walked out of my life or a business associate who stabbed me in the back. But some of you have. And it's so painful, and that's why this stanza is especially for you. God's promise that he will never leave us or forsake us is very special, and there is an amazing arithmetical element to this in the Bible. I want to show you when I saw it. Well, I was stunned by it. I want to tell everybody about it. To begin with, there are five different passages of Scripture that emphasize this promise from God to never leave us or to forsake us. Now, there are other various places in the Bible where the Lord tells us he'll not leave us, he'll be with us forever, and other verses where we're told that he'll not forsake us or abandon us. But this remarkable combination of verbs, I will never leave you or forsake you, that combination occurs exactly on five different occasions in the Bible. The first time is related to the approaching death of Moses, the man of God. Look with me at Deuteronomy 31. If you have your Bibles, just open there, and I want to show you this. This is the dramatic moment when Moses announces to the Israelites that he is going to leave them. He will not be there to lead them across the Jordan River to conquer and to possess the promised land. And he announces that his successor will be Joshua, their general. So Deuteronomy 31 begins by saying, Moses went out and spoke these words to all of Israel. I am now 120 years old, and I am no longer able to lead you. I can imagine the hushed tension that came over those hearing this announcement. Twice in my own life, I've had to read a statement of resignation as the lead pastor of a church. The first time was in 1979, when I resigned from my first church so that I could move to my second. And the second time came 37 years later, when I relinquished my role as senior pastor of the Donaldson Fellowship 
to care for Katrina and to meet the obligations of a broader ministry. While I've been privileged to remain on the staff of our church, those two moments were very painful for me. And it was painful for many of the people who heard those words. Well, think of this. Moses was the only leader these people had ever known. He continued in verse 3 by telling them that even though he could not lead them across the River Jordan, the Lord absolutely could and he would. He said, the Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy those nations before you, and he will take possession of the land. And then in verse 3, Moses announced the new leader. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord has said. Now, notice how Moses put this. He said, I'm not going to lead you across the Jordan River, but the Lord your God himself is going to do it, and Joshua also. The actual presence of the Lord God himself was their great leader, and Joshua would be their human leader. And now look down at verse 6. These words spoken to these stunned Israelites. Moses said to them, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's the first time we read that phrase in the Bible. Those words are for us. We all have rivers to cross and land to possess and giants to face and work to do. We face transitions in life. Sometimes those that we love are not able to go with us into the future. But the Lord our God himself goes before us and he goes with us and whatever challenge you're facing, the Lord himself goes before you and he is with you and he will never leave you or forsake you. Now, look at what happens in verses 7 and 8. Then Moses summoned Joshua, come up here, Joshua, and said to him in the presence of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. So here in rapid-fire succession is the second occasion of this phrase. The same words that Moses spoke to all of Israel a moment ago, he now speaks to Joshua in the presence of all Israel, and the promise is doubled. This is a doubled promise. Wherever you go and whatever you do, as you move into the future, the Lord your God will be before you, and he will be with you, and he will never forsake you or abandon you. So do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses gives Israel a final great song or poem that he had written. And then in chapter 33, he speaks his final words and blesses each of the 12 tribes that make up the nation. And then in chapter 34, the aged lawgiver climbs up the steep incline of Mount Nebo and disappears from view and dies 
and we're told he is buried by God and nobody knows the side of his grave. And then we turn the page and we are in the book of Joshua and in a new era. Look at the way it begins. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. And now look down at verse 5. The Lord is still speaking to Joshua, and he says, No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is the third time. And this time it is the Lord himself who speaks those words which Moses earlier had spoken. He repeats what Moses had said in the book of Deuteronomy. The promise is tripled. It becomes a rope of three strands. The Lord said, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake you. You and I have the Lord's own word for us in triplicate. He will not abandon you. And then God led the Israelites across the parted waters of the Jordan River. And Joshua served as a human leader under the Lord. And for the rest of the book of Joshua, we read about the story of the conquest and the division of the Holy Land. And the next book tells about the transitional period of the judges. And then we have the monarchy with the establishing of King Saul as the first king, followed by King David, followed by King Solomon. And each of these kings reigned for 40 years. It was King Solomon who built the great temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And when he prayed a prayer of dedication for it, we have one of the most eloquent prayers in the Bible. Let's turn over to 1 Kings chapter 8 and let me show it to you. 1 Kings and chapter number 8. 1 Kings and chapter 8 and look down at verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. Now, Solomon's prayer is very long. It's the second longest prayer in the Bible. I've wondered how Solomon kept his arms up in the air during the entire duration of his prayer. But let's go all the way down to verse 56. He says, Praise be to the Lord, who has given us rest for his people Israel as he promised. Not one word has failed of all of the good promises that he gave through his servant Moses. And may the Lord our God be with us and with our ancestors. May he never leave us or forsake us. And here's the fourth time we see these words together, but this time it's in the form of a great scriptural prayer. Solomon is literally pulling out a great biblical promise and turning it into a prayer. God said, I will never, never leave you or forsake you. And Solomon said, Lord, we claim that promise for ourselves to this day. Do you know there's a promise in the Bible for every concern you'll ever have? every need you'll ever face, every burden you'll ever bear, and every challenge you'll ever confront. We find these promises, 
and they're printed in black and white in the ink of our Bibles, and we snatch them off the page by faith, and we claim them as our own in prayer. Solomon shows us how to do it here. We find a promise in the Bible, and we say, Dear Lord, I am taking that promise and claiming it now in prayer. And so here, the promise is quadrupled. It is increased fourfold. But this promise that God will never leave us or forsake us occurs a fifth time, and this is in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of people. They were Jewish Christians who were discouraged because of the rising levels of persecution around them. The writer wrote this book to encourage them to persevere. And so look at Hebrews chapter 13, the last chapter, and verse 5. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And with that, the promise is quintupled, and it passes from Moses and Joshua through Solomon to the church of Jesus Christ and to all of us. It becomes a rope from heaven with five strands or cables. But the context here is interesting. The writer of Hebrews uses this promise to warn us against falling in love with money and with material things. Why is that? Well, as I said, this book was written to some Jewish Christians who are facing a time of persecution. The real key to understanding the book of Hebrews is found in chapter 10 when the writer talks to the people that he is originally addressing. And he says to them in Hebrews 10, verse 32, Remember those earlier times after you had received the light, when you endured a great conflict of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult or persecution, or other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison, and look at this, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and larger possessions. So these were seasoned Christians. They were older. They were Jewish believers, men and women in Christ, who when they were younger, full of zeal, had withstood persecution, and sometimes that persecution had included fines and penalties and the seizure of their property. Perhaps the government came in and seized their homes because churches were meeting there. Perhaps they had to hand over their possessions or they had to pay large financial settlements simply because of their faith. They did so, and they still maintained the joy of their salvation because they knew that they had better and more lasting possessions ahead of them in heaven. They had better and more lasting promises from God. So now in chapter 13, the writer is telling them to accept the loss of their property again if that's what it took to stood for Christ. Our worldly possessions aren't ours for long anyway. I mean, our cars, our houses, our furniture, our clothes, our collectible items, even our treasured keepsakes are here today and gone tomorrow. Our investments can 
evaporate in an instant. So he is saying, don't fall in love with these things. Don't become too attached to them. But know this, there is one thing you will never lose. You will never lose the care and the protection and the life and the love and the nearness of the God who loves you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Not in time and not in eternity. Not on earth and not in heaven. Not in life and not in death. So this is a five-fold promise. But there is another fascinating element to it. I'm not fluent in the original Greek of the New Testament, but I have study guides and commentaries, and I know just a little bit of Greek. All of these aids say the same thing about this verse. The word leave here, as the writer of Hebrews originally wrote it in the Greek, the word leave is preceded by two negatives in the Greek text. There is a double negative in front of that. Now, in the English, a double negative becomes a positive, as you probably remember from English class. But in Greek, it simply serves to intensify the verb. In other words, the Lord says here, I will never, never leave you. And the word leave, by the way, means I will never let you sink or fail to sustain you. I will never, never do that. Furthermore, the word forsake means to leave someone in a helpless condition like that dog tied to the fence or to let someone down. And this time, the verb forsake is preceded not by one, not by two, but by three negatives. I will never, never, never forsake you, or literally, never, never, never will I forsake you. In other words, in this Greek, there are five renditions of the word never. Now, Christian expositors have always noticed this. I'm not sure why our English translations don't reflect it. I'm not a translator. But the ever-quotable Charles Spurgeon said, I have no doubt you are aware that our translation does not convey the whole force of the original and that it would be hardly possible in English to give the full weight of the Greek. We might render it. He has said, I will never, never leave thee. I will never, never, never forsake thee, as there are five negatives in the Greek. Now, think of what this means. The promise of God that I will never leave you or forsake you occurs five times in the Bible, and in the fifth time, it is pressed home with five negatives. And this five-fold Greek construction here in Hebrews 13 was well known to the hymnist, for in the final stanza of how firm a foundation, he paraphrased it, as it were, from the original Greek. Notice five times how he does this. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. So why on earth are you and I ever insecure about anything in our lives? We have rivers to cross, 
challenges to face, problems to confront, and giants to fight. We have promises to claim, but why should we ever be insecure, afraid, or discouraged? We have a five-fold promise from God, and the final repetition of it is underlined, as it were, five times. So how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. Well, thank you so much for listening to this series of podcasts on the great hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Remember that whenever you memorize a stanza of that hymn, you are in essence learning and putting into your minds very singable scripture. Well, as I said next week, please tune in again as we study the Book of Acts, how Firm a Foundation series of podcasts was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media and edited by Elijah Rowe. The music for this series came from the piano of my great friend Jeff Bennett of the Second Baptist Church of Houston, Texas. For more information and resources about things that we have available, including my book, Then Sings My Soul, 52 Hymns That Inspire Joyous Prayer, visit my website at robertjmorgan.com. This is Robert J. Morgan. Thank you for listening, and may God be with you till we meet again.